Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Acts chapter 2, and uh, I want to just, if you weren't here last week, I want to just kind of read the beginning part just to kind of give us a little bit of a context to where I left off and where I'm going to pick up this morning. So beginning with verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language." Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the borders of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my, of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This was the portion that we talked about last week. The first thing Peter does here is he addresses those questioning what was was happening. What's going on? What does this mean? And he also addresses those who are mocking. And he says, what you see and what you hear, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. And as I shared last week, I love that because what occurred, there's a biblical reason behind it. Last week I said everything that you and I say or do or believe, we should be able to go back to Scripture and say this is why we do what we do. This is why I believe what I believe. This is why I say what I say, because Scripture backs it up. There should be a biblical basis 
for everything that we do. Now, and I shared last week, you know, someone can come up with some real wild stuff and say, well, the Bible, and they'll pull a verse out of context and say, see, this, the, the Bible says this, and so this is why I'm doing what I'm doing or what I believe what I believe. And last week I shared with you guys my rule of thumb. This is my personal rule of thumb for belief and practice. I always ask myself about these questions. There's three of them. First of all, I say, did Jesus teach about it? I mean, did he talk about whatever it is that it's a, it's a practice or a belief or whatever? Did Jesus teach about it? Did he set an example of it in his ministry? So that's the very first thing. What did Jesus say about that? The next thing I ask myself is, do I see it? in the book of Acts? Do I see it exampled in the first church? Do I see it exampled among the apostles as recorded in Acts? And then I don't stop at that question because you could still kind of off on some things. The next thing I ask myself is do the apostles expound on it in their epistles? And I'll tell you, if you, if you ask those three questions and you can say yes to all three questions, you're pretty, I would just say, I would say for definitely 100%, but you're pretty, there's a good chance you're on safe ground with whatever, whatever it is. If there's two out of three, I'm sorry, there's, I have to question it. If there's one out of three, forget it. <laughs> you're just pulling something out of thin air, you know, out of context. So anyways, that's what I do. And you know, you can eliminate a lot of goofy things that are being done in the name of the Lord if you use that kind of criteria. But I love, that's what Peter says. Hey, hey, what you're seeing, this is what Scripture talks about. Listen, if what you or I do or say diverges from Scripture, we need to, we need to stop and say, you know, is this just man's tradition that we're doing? Is this some, maybe, maybe is this just something we're doing we're influenced by our culture? Because people can be influenced by our cultures. We're influenced by our cultures in some ways as a church. I hope not to the extent of being, you know, her, her, you know, heretics or anything like that. But we have to ask ourselves that. Or maybe do I misunderstand scriptures? I've had a misunderstanding of scriptures before. I've done things and then later found out oh, that's not really biblical. And so I had I was challenged. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to stop doing that because scripture doesn't back it up. Although the people that I hung out with, they all were doing that, but you know, I never researched it myself. And so it's a good thing to do that. Or am I misapplying Scripture? And if you take Scripture out of context, there's a good chance you could be misapplying Scripture. So I love what Peter says. Hey, what you see and what you hear, this is what Scripture talks about in the book of Joel. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of Peter's message. And I, I entitled it, Christ is Alive and Why It Matters. So we're going to pick it up at verse 22. Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he starts out, you know, men of Israel, hear these words. In other words, pay attention. Here's Peter who cowered at a servant girl when Christ is being crucified. And now he's standing before thousands, literally thousands of people. Some of them are mocking. That would be kind of tough to do. Some of them are all like, what is going on? And here he is, man, filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking boldly. Men of Israel, pay attention to what I'm speaking about. And the first thing he talks about is Christ's life. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him. 
You know, sometimes we see someone making, doing an action or something, and, and we make a judgment on their actions, what they're doing. And we don't really know their heart. We don't know their motive, but we make a judgment on what we see they're doing. I love about Christ's life. We not only see and hear what he, you know, see what he does and hear what he says, but we're also given a glimpse into his motive. That doesn't happen very often with people. You know, sometimes you don't know what their motive is. But scriptures gives us Christ's motives behind his actions. Think about this in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. This is Christ's motive in what he does. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He did all these wonderful signs, miracles, wonders, and it wasn't to draw attention to himself. He was just doing what the Father spoke to him, told him to do. The Father was doing these works through him. What a far cry that what, from what we see today in some circles. And then he says, as you yourselves know, he's bringing it down to these guys, his audience right there. You see, at the time, Jesus of Nazareth was not an obscure person. It was not like, Jesus. who, who's, who are you talking about? Pretty much everybody in Jerusalem knew who Jesus was. Even the visitors that were coming to Jerusalem, the proselytes that were coming from all these different nations to worship at Jerusalem. By the time of his crucifixion, most everyone, and I would probably venture to say everyone in Jerusalem, knew of him. In fact, Paul even backs this up when, when he's speaking to uh, King Festus. It's in Acts chapter 26. And he's talking about Jesus. And he says, he says I'm, concern, I'm convinced that none of these things escapes your attention because this thing wasn't done in a corner. He's speaking to a Roman official. You know what's going on. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, describes... Christ's crucifixion in very, very detailed. Uh, it's a great book. He describes the procession to the cross, and he says that the Romans took the longest road to the place of crucifixion through the most crowded streets in Jerusalem to draw the most attention possible. Why? Because they were setting an example. That's why they crucified some. They wanted people, hey, this guy's dying for what he did. I mean, you better not do it. You know, that, that's, the, that's their motive. That was why they did that. And so the, the, the victim or the criminal, and of course Christ wasn't a criminal, but the, the, the person that was being crucified would be paraded through the most crowded streets to attract the most public attention. And then he also goes on to describe the place of crucifixion. He says it was close to the great road which led from the north into Jerusalem and many pass, would pass by on their way into Jerusalem. And again, this is a festival, this is a feast. So all these people are coming into Jerusalem. They would have walked by and seen Christ on the cross there. And they would have been drawn because they would have seen three crosses. It would have drawn their attention. In fact, that's corroborated in Scripture, Mark 15, verse 29. It says, And those who passed by, so people are just walking by, blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Not only that, 
But the Titleist, I didn't know that's what it's called, but the sign that they put above the cross, in Luke chapter 23, verse 38, it says, and, and an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. So Jesus, or so, or so Peter is saying, you guys know about this. You know about Christ's life. But as I was preparing this, I was thinking, why did Christ's life, or why did his crucifixion have to be so humiliating? Why did it have to be so public? You know, why couldn't he have just been, you know, quietly crucified somewhere and nobody knew about it? Why would it be so public? And I think the answer is because of Acts 2. Because now Peter could say, hey, you saw him. You know what happened to him. You know, our loving Father may allow you to go through something very public. He may allow you to go through something very humiliating, some very difficult circumstance, and it's in order to reach the heart of someone who's watching your life. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So first he's speaking of Christ's life and now speaking of Christ's death. Jesus died. And there was no question that he died. In fact, the Roman soldiers verified that Christ died. They determined Christ was already dead when they were to go and break the legs of the criminals so that they could speed up the, the execution process. And they, they broke the legs of the criminals on both sides. They came to Christ and he was already dead. And then to make sure, the Roman soldier stuck a spear in his side to verify that he was dead. So Rome certified that Jesus was dead. It says he was delivered up by God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. You know, we were singing about this morning. Man, it's, it's amazing the, the unfathomable love of the Father. Because I put myself in the, in the situation of being a father. Man, would I, would I allow my son or my daughter to be humiliated publicly the way Christ was humiliated and to be crucified and treated? Would, would I do that with my... I guarantee not. But that's the love of our Father, that he will allow... Christ to do you know to do that to be to be to be crucified by God's determined purpose and foreknowledge that word delivered up it means to be given over to the power the will of his enemies because you allow your child to be given up to somebody who hates them who's going to mistreat them and kill them that's why when we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's, those, those aren't trivial words. They mean a lot to the Father. God, Jesus was crucified and died by God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. It wasn't a case of Jesus ticking off the wrong people at the wrong time. You know, you were, shouldn't have said that, Christ, because now they're going to crucify. No, this was part of God's plan of salvation. And what that speaks of is the sovereignty of God. From creation, from before creation, God had a plan for Christ to become our Savior. And yet we also see man's culpability. Because Peter says he was, he was delivered up by God's determined purpose, but you yourselves, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified 
and put to death. So there's man's responsibility too. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So first he's talking about Christ's life and then Christ died and now the good news, Christ is alive. He rose from the dead. He says, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Why was it not possible that he should be held by death? I don't know, uh, back in high school, um, I was really into like Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones and all these different bands. It was why I wasn't wasn't walking with the Lord. And I had a friend from Canada come down and visit, and she gave me this tape from some long-haired guy named Larry Norman. I don't know if you ever remember Larry Norman, but I started listening to it. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. I, I I could get into that. And so I started listening to Larry Norman music. He had one song, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? One of the, you guys probably, you could probably sing it, but anyway, I'm not going to sing it for you. But. So Jesus told the truth. Jesus showed the way. There's one more thing I'd like to say. They nailed him to the cross. They laid him in the ground, but they should have known you can't keep a good man down. And that's, there's some, there's some theology there right now. There's some theology in that. Of course, the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul writes... In 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus died for our sins, not his. And because his sacrifice, because he was a sinless sacrifice, his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And that's why death couldn't hold him. That's why he was rose. When you, when you know, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, that means your sacrifice His sacrifice for your sins was accepted. That's awesome. That should fill us with joy today. And so on the third day, he rose again. And then Peter continues here in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will, make, uh, you will make me full of joy in your presence. And then Peter says, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to, to, uh, to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so now we have the testimony of prophecy that confirms Christ's resurrection david there he's prophetically speaking and you you think of it david was a shepherd right we know he was a shepherd he of course was the sweet he calls himself the sweet psalmist of israel he's also a king and peter says he was a prophet amazing david is prophetically quoting the messiah's words there he's not speaking of himself and that's what peter's going to hey 
David's dead, and of course, 2,000 years ago, you could go to this tomb. And, you know, now if you want to find out where there's a holy site in Israel, just look for a gift shop, and you'll know that's where there's a holy site. But back then, they probably knew exactly where David's tomb was, and his body was there. It's not an empty tomb. And so what Peter is saying is, David's speaking of the, of the Messiah. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so now we not only have the testimony of prophecy, but we have the testimony of the witnesses that confirm Christ's resurrection. You'll notice that no one ever got up and challenged. Thousands of people are listening to Peter. No one ever got up and challenged the disciples and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's go to the tomb and take a look at this. Why? Because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. There was no body to produce. The best thing that the Jewish leaders could do to kind of try to try to refute this, in Matthew 28, verse 13, they told the soldiers, they said, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. What day was that? Well, Matthew was written about 60 AD. So for many, many years, this, is, this was their, their answer to an empty tomb. Well, the disciples stole the body. There's a little bit of a problem with that. Actually, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, these were Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers had a very great incentive to not sleep during their watch. And, and, and not even not only sleep, but allow their prisoner or the person they're watching or guarding to, to be disappeared, to be taken. Why? Because according to Roman law, they would have been executed. That's a pretty good incentive to stay awake, you know. You wouldn't want to. Not only that, if they were asleep, how would they have known that it was the disciples that took the body? So, I mean, it's just like, okay, you guys, that, that was a pretty lame thing, but anyways. You know, when you look at the gospel accounts, and even the disciples themselves, when, when we read about the fact that they're told that Christ's risen from the dead, the tomb's empty, they're like, yeah, right, you know. They didn't believe the women that came and told them the story. They didn't believe it. So, uh, at first, the disciples did not believe until they physically saw Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Then they believed and of all those witnesses, and there were hundreds of them, most all of these witnesses to the resurrection would eventually be martyred for their faith. With ever saying, no, we, we just made it up. No, 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 they died saying Christ is risen. That's an amazing testimony. Verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. And Peter's answering a pretty important question here. And the question is this. If Christ is risen, where is he now? Well, the answer is, he ascended into heaven and is seated or is exalted at the right hand of God. That right hand of the Father, that's a position of honor and authority. And the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit confirms Christ's ascension. Jesus said, in John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. 
Not only that, but he says the evidence of his presence is what you see and what you hear. So the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit alone is a testimony that Christ has risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then we have the testimony from the Holy Spirit through the gift of tongues that we talked about last week. Here's these Galileans, and we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. I shared last week about the gift of tongues, that the gift of tongues is not speaking to people, it's speaking to the Lord. It's worshiping the Lord. It's speaking, speaking thanks and, 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 and praise and glory uh, to the Lord. Not only that, but we have the evidence of Peter's changed life. You know, a changed life can be quite a testimony. And Peter's life was, no, uh, was, was amazing too. And then not only that, but shortly, as we'll get to a little bit later, there's going to be the evidence of the changed lives of 3,000 people listening to Peter. Man, the Holy Spirit's there. Peter then explains why Christ's ascension matters. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know what's interesting about what Peter just quoted here? Jesus said the exact same thing. Jesus was asking the the. Uh, the uh, Pharisees one day. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 22. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And of course, being scholars, you know, they know. They say he's a son of David. And then Jesus said to them, well, how then does David and the Spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the scripture says that no one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> they didn't want to look foolish. I love this. Because here's Peter. And he was with Jesus when Jesus said this. And he's hearing it. And maybe it's not, you know, he's not connecting. None of the disciples, they, they didn't connect the dots while Christ was still alive before he was crucified. But after, when he rose again from the dead, the spirit now is, is just speaking to them and showing them. And it's, the dots are getting connected. And now Peter is remembering that. And I love this. He learned and he applied what Christ taught him. He's just, he's just hey, man, I remember Jesus said this. The other thing about that is Peter's message is consistent with Christ's message. Man, that's one of the things I pray, man, every Sunday. Lord, let me, be, let me give an accurate representation of you this morning. Lord, I don't want to speak and, and not say what, what you would have me say. I don't want to be speaking any untruth to anybody. Lord, help me to rightly divide the scriptures. That's exactly what Peter is doing here. So what's significant? Now for us, we don't, you know, we read, you know, why does the whole question about David calling him Lord, it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us maybe. But in Jewish culture, that would have made a lot of sense. Because in Jewish culture, no father would call his offspring Lord. You just didn't do that, okay? That's just a, that's just a cultural thing you didn't do. And yet that is exactly what David did. The Messiah, who would be the son of David, by definition, was also the son of God and that's why he is Lord. You know, sometimes when you um, 
if you ever led anyone to faith in Christ, sometimes you, you know, you ask them if they want to, you know, or you're saying the prayer and you want them to pray after you and, you know, Lord, I make you my Lord and my Savior. It's like, you know, the Savior part, maybe they understand, but the Lord part, you know, who knows if they really understand what Lord means. But, you know, Scriptures tells us what Lord means. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews explains what being Lord means. And I just took this from chapter 1. There's other passages, but from chapter 1 of Hebrews, it says that the Lord is heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the express image of the Father. In other words, he is God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is the Savior who purges, purges our sins, and he's worshipped by angels. And he reigns everlasting. So when, when you say, Jesus, you are Lord, this, this is what you're saying. This is what you're proclaiming. And then Peter brings it home to the audience. And remember, the audience is not only Jewish people, but Jewish proselytes, people that want to become Jewish, that were coming to Jerusalem. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now he's really bringing it home. The rubber's meeting the road. You guys crucified him. There's individual responsibility. He says, Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. He's Israel's Messiah. In fact, he's your Messiah, you men of Israel. And you crucified him. Now, you and I here today, we did not crucify Christ. But he was crucified for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And he died for your sins, he died for my sins. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Cut to the heart. What does that mean? It means to prick with a sharp point. And what Peter's words, what they did was they produced a sharp, painful emotion, a sting in the hearts of his listeners. And you know, when you get stung in the heart by somebody, somebody says something and it just nails you, that's what I usually say, man, you nailed me. Um, I usually don't tell them that they nailed me because I don't want them to know that they nailed me. But you know, if they nailed me with something, I've had that happen before. There's two possible responses when a person's cut to the heart. One response, and we'll see it in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, is when the Sanhedrin, Stephen, is speaking to the Sanhedrin. They're cut to the heart, too. They're, they're, they're pricked in their heart. What's their response? They reject the message. They gnash their teeth, whatever that means, you know. They, they gnash their teeth and they kill Stephen. That's one response. The other response is what we see here in chapter 2. They accept the message. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What a beautiful response. You know, the people asked John the Baptist the exact same thing when John the Baptist's ministry, he was going around before Christ, you know, and he was, he was preparing the way for the Messiah. And people were convicted by John's message too. And they would say, what should we do? And John had an answer for them. 
He says, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. To the tax collectors, he said, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Even soldiers, and I'm assuming they might have been Roman soldiers, but even soldiers were convicted by John the Baptist's message. And John said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, but be content with your wages. Same question. Why didn't Peter say the same thing? Hey, if you got a tunic, man, share it with someone. Why, why didn't he say that? You see, John, John the Baptist's message was a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. He was preparing people's hearts. Peter's message was the finished work. The Messiah has already come. He's already completed the work. There's nothing for you to do. It's been done by the Savior Verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ, of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. What's the message? What, what's there, what do you do? Repent. What, what, what does repent mean? It means changing your heart regarding who Jesus Christ is and changing your direction regarding your sin. It's, it's simple. You're, you're turning away from your sin and you're turning to Christ. That's, that's what repentance basically means. And then he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, according to David Guzik, a, a guy, I go to his commentary sometimes, he says this, Baptism was not a common practice for Jews, only for Gentile proselytes who wanted to become Jews. For the Jews listening, you know, the, the, being baptized, this was making a very clear statement of their recognition of their need for Jesus Christ and their trust in him for their salvation. It, it, you know, so if you, wanna, if you truly believe, then be baptized. And then he says this, for the promise is to you, so to the people that are listening, to your children, so maybe they hadn't been born yet, they're you know, the young, young parents or something, or maybe they're not even married yet, and they're, they're going to be married, to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as our Lord God will call. That's true today for you and I and for our children. This is true for those who are going to turn to Christ October 2nd. That God loves you to her. Man, I've been, I hope you've been praying. I've been praying. Uh, you know, we've, we've got the prayer books, and you pray, you pray daily up until leading up to the, uh, up to the event. Um, uh, I forgot the name of the church. It's uh, the Lutheran Church on Elton Hills. You guys know the name of it? Holy Spirit. No, I don't think it's Holy. Is it? No, it's not Holy Spirit. Anyways, you know, if you drive down Elton Hills Road, there's a Lutheran school, and there's a church there. The pastor, Jeff, there, he's opened up his church uh, at noon for anybody that wants to come and pray. He's there, and you can pray for an hour there with other believers for the God Loves You tour. Anyways, um, so I forget the name of the church. I, sh I should have had it written down here, but um, if you drive down, you'll see us, Holy Lutheran Cross. School. Holy Cross. Thank you. Thank you. That's the place. Um, so... For those who October 2nd will respond to Franklin's message, which really it will be the Holy Spirit speaking to them. 
they can have remission of sins too. What is remission of sins? That's kind of a word we don't use too often. Remission means pardon or forgiveness for sin, but it doesn't just mean that. It also means freedom from sin. Now, what a blessing. That's what Christ offers for you and I. And not only that, but they can have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They can have that dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. You see how Peter is emboldened and, and, and their witness, and look how many people respond. That's the Holy Spirit working in the life of Peter and the apostles. We can have that same indwelling dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. And they, we can also have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That promises to us as well. It didn't end with them. That promises to you and I as well. And he says, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, that's interesting. Because some people, you know, they, they talk about God's sovereignty and that, you know, God, and, and the Bible speaks of predestination. So it's, it's in scriptures. But what I see here, and it's just, just my, my thinking anyways, I came up with these phrases. They're kind of pithy, but, you know, I put this down. It's don't, don't like, stone me if you think it's wrong. But you can't come to Christ unless uh, God calls you. You can't come to Christ unless God calls you. But you also won't come to Christ unless you willingly repent of your sins. I, I, think, I see both in scriptures. Um, I see that right here. In Acts chapter 2, I see both God's sovereign election, but he also responds to man's free will. I'm waiting for the tomatoes. No tomato. Okay, good. What are we Going to duck. <laughs> All right. Verse 40. <laughs> I'll probably have some conversations after. No. I did a conference once uh, years ago uh, at uh, Calvary Chapel. Actually, it wasn't a conference. I was sharing on a Sunday. And I don't know what I said, but I must have triggered some guy. And he came up and he was like, he wanted to verify that I wasn't completely just Calvinistic. And, you know, and you want to make sure I wasn't Arme Arminian completely, you know. And I was like, I just, it was interesting. I'm like, I better watch what I say. Verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's an amazing thing that occurred there. You know, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai that's considered the birth of Israel. That, that's what that's what the historian, the, he, the Jewish historians, they say Israel was born on the day that they received the law on, the, on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. That's the birth of the nation of Israel. You know, Paul said about the law, which is the Ten Commandments, the law, uh, Old Testament law. Romans seven verse nine through ten. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. What does he mean by that? You see, the law reveals our sinfulness. That was the purpose behind the law, to show us that there's no way we could become righteous. There's no way we could earn salvation. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. And the law reveals our sin. And then, of course, we have Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death. So what's interesting to me is that the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law, the birth of the nation of Israel, 
Remember Moses was coming down from the mountain? Actually, he's still up on the mountain, and, and the Lord tells Moses, Moses, you better get down there. There's something going on down there. And Moses, and he's got his, I think it was Joshua was with him. They, they're like, hey, man, there's a party going on. I'm hearing music and stuff. And, and they get down there. What, what happened, man? Aaron took all the ladies' earrings and rings and everything, and they melted it down, and they made a golden calf. He's like, I threw these, these, I threw their jewelry in the fire. Out came this calf, you know. What an excuse. But you guys know that story. What happened at that, at that time? Moses told the Levites, hey, you Levites, if you're on my side, get over here. They all came over to Moses. He said, strap on your swords, boys. <laughs> What'd they do? They killed 3,000 people. At the birth of the nation of Israel, 3,000 died. Well, Pentecost is the birth of the church. Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 6, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And while 3,000 died at the giving of the law, man, 3,000 receive eternal life at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the birth of the church. That's not just a coincidence. That's by design. That's by God's design. Paul said this, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of prayers, excuse me, not breaking of prayers, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon the, uh, every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. I would just say this. This is why we do what we do at Calvary Chapel. We don't do, hopefully, we're not doing things by tradition. You know, we don't, hopefully we're not doing that. Hopefully we're not doing it just because, hey, this is our culture. You know, this is what we do because, you know, we're part of the culture. We continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. What, what does that mean? We're teaching through the word of God. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're teaching the Bible. We're continuing steadfastly in the Bible. We're continuing steadfastly in fellowship. And that was hard a couple years ago. What is fellowship? It means we're gathering together to encourage one another, to exhort one another, maybe stir one another up to love and good works. And we're continuing steadfastly in breaking of bread. And what that is speaking about is communion. We share, the, you know, we share the communion table together steadfastly, continuing in that until Christ returns. And then we're continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's why we do what we do here at Calvary Chapel Rochester. That's why the signs are on the wall there. I quoted that verse on the signs because that's what I want us to be about. That's what every church should be about. Verse 44 Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Man, wasn't that cool? That's so groovy. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Why couldn't we all just pool everything together and just live, you know, like communal? You know, believers were doing it in the, in the part of the uh, Jesus movement in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. The, the believers saw that and said, hey, let's gather together. And so they were, Calvary Chapel had some communes, Christian communes back in the day. You know, the thing is, we only see that here in Acts chapter 2. 
And while it maybe it sounds like, man, that's, you know, it, some people might say, well, you know, look at the church. We're not doing that. We're not, we're not, you know, I'm not sharing my salary with this and that. We're not doing this, you know. We could become very critical. But you've got to take that into context. Think about it. On that day, they started out with 120 believers. On that day, 3,000 new believers came to faith in Christ Jesus. And undoubtedly, many of those were proselytes that were traveling into Jerusalem. And they're not going to just go home. They want to hear more about, tell me more about Jesus. I want to know more about, I wanna, let's read some scriptures together. These people probably didn't want to go home right away. And so now you went from 120 people to 3,000 people. I don't know how many people in this room right now, but can you imagine if we went from this to 3,000? What do you do? You know, where do you, where do you house them? How do you feed people? It's just, there was a need that rose up and the church responded. I love that. There were so many, probably so many pilgrims to Jerusalem had no idea their lives would be radically turned upside down and they were eager to stay and learn from the apostles. And the church just met the immediate need of the new believers there. That's really how ministry should happen. Seriously. You know, sometimes you think, well, if you build it, they'll come. You know, if we, if we start this ministry, you know, we're going to step out in faith, we're going to start this ministry, and then we'll pray that people show up. That's not... That's not the way I like to do ministry. The way I like to do ministry, and I think this is how ministry generally should happen, is first of all, there's got to be a need. If you're starting a ministry and there's no need, what's, what's the use, you know? So there's a need. A need arises. And then we're made aware of a need. I've had people come to me and, and made me aware of a need that they saw, and a lot of times they say, well, you know, if you saw the need, maybe, maybe you could fill it, you know? Instead of saying the church should fill the need. <laughs> I've had, over the years, I've had that many times. But a need arises. There becomes an awareness of a need. And God puts it on the people's hearts to meet the need. And then people just obey to the Spirit. And, do, and, they, and they fill the need. That is the, that's, the, that's the formula for ministry. That's what we're seeing right here. They just say, hey, we've got to do something with these guys. And women and children. And so they rose up. I pray our church does the same thing. Not that we have, you know, if God brought 3,000 here, yeah, we, you know, we, I think we'd rise up. I'm sure all of you would rise up and do what we had to do. Who knows how many people are going to get, get saved there at the Billy Graham crusade, you know. This church could grow quite a bit in, in one weekend. You know, if it happens, that's awesome. But what are we going to do? What are you going to do? I'll burn myself out trying to, trying to meet every need. I, I won't be able to do it. But that's the body of Christ. We're all rising up together. Verse 44. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I love this. I love this. First of all, they ate their food with gladness. Now, every time I eat, I'm glad, but that's not what they were talking about. Um, they ate their food with gladness. Man, they, they were full of joy. Joyful. They had simplicity of heart. What does that mean? It means without guile and duplicity, in sincerity and purity of intention. In other words, 
they had there was no drama now there will be drama we get to chapter uh, four. there will be drama coming up in the church and eventually all the epistles are because of dramas <laughs> you know hey paul this is going on in our church what should we do about it so it's going to happen why because people are there <laughs> flesh you know uh, but at, at this point i love this there's no drama there's no hypocrisy that'll come a little bit later too they're just praising god and worshiping without any kind of guile, without any duplicity. I love this. And they're having favor with all the people. That doesn't mean with each other, which they probably were. That means all the people around them. What, what, what's that speaking about? That's speaking about true repentance. You see, if you're truly repented, if you've truly turned from your sin and you're turning to Christ, you're gonna, people are going to notice it in your life. And it's going to be a, t- a testimony of repentance. I always look at the fruit of people's lives, and I usually can judge where their hearts are by the fruit of, of what they do, not what they say necessarily. And then finally, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had no programs, no gimmicks. It was just the attractiveness of changed lives. That's, what's, that's what brought people, man, what, what, there's something about them. I want what they want. And I hope that would be true for each one of us. Let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. And I'll have the worship team come on up.